All right, welcome to uh, Equipping Hour, and this is uh, part three of Bible 101. And there are notes, uh, note sheets in the back, I think. Um, and I just encourage you to, to get online and, and download those. Uh, Saturday evenings usually works, if not Sunday morning. And uh, you can bring those with you, or uh, we'll print out a few that you can pick up here. Anybody still need notes? My father-in-law needs notes. Are there none left back there? Are we out? Okay, we're going to print out some more notes. And uh, when, when those come back in the room, we'll, uh, we'll distribute a few of those. It'll be helpful. There's, we've got 76 slides and eight pages of notes that we can't possibly get through in the next 49 and a half minutes. Uh, but I wanted you to have lots of information that you can take home. Um, so lots of uh, quotes and data that you can have. What are we covering in Bible 101 over five weeks? Uh, first week, we looked at the importance of thinking about the Bible correctly. Why must we have a right bibliology? Last week, we looked at inspiration. How was the Bible written? This week, we're looking at canonization or how the Bible was connected. Next week, we'll look at preservation. Uh, has the Bible been preserved down to us uh, well or not well? And whose responsibility is it? And then uh, fifthly, we'll look at textual criticism which is the study of how do we get back to faithfulness to the original manuscripts. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the original copy, is not in the British Museum. Right? You, you can't go look at the original. So how do we know that our copies of copies of copies are accurate? And uh, so that'll be week five. So this morning, as usual, uh, we're going to start with our little experiment. And I've got my faithful distributors one to hand these out. Thanks, Mike. And so uh, perhaps you've caught on a little bit to what we're doing. We're playing a little bit of telephone game in written form. So each week you've gotten a version of a paragraph that I wrote originally, and it has morphed a little bit. Um, there are eight versions going out now, and your job is to take the paragraph in front of you and copy it onto the very sheet you're looking at. And what we're doing here is simulating scribes who copied biblical manuscripts. You probably caught on to that a little bit. Um, what we're going to do at the end of this little exercise is recreate the original from a bunch of errant copies. And we'll walk through kind of how we do that. So some of you have caught on and decided, Tom Blevins, is he not in the room? Uh, that, you know, there's always somebody that hijacks the telephone game. You know, you whisper something in someone's ear, there's 20 people in a circle, and it whispers all the, all the way around by the end. It doesn't sound anything like the message it started with. And it's because somebody in the middle says, I'm going to totally change this. Watch this. Some of you are doing that as scribes. On the other hand, some of you have become very good scribes in three weeks. I, I told you in the, in the very first week out of 150 or so submissions, only one person turned in a flawless manuscript. Uh, the next week, it was more. This last week, I had at least 15 flawless copies. Well done. Some of you scribes are great. Um, some of you scribes put your names on your papers, so I get to know who you are which is kind of fun. I do grade them all. So uh, I hope you're already writing on the paragraph. I haven't told you to start yet, but you should start. 
and you've got four minutes. Is that a question? You're waiting for sheets. Okay, they're coming around. Four minutes from right now. Yes, if, if you would be so kind as to return your scribal implements at the end of class, uh, that is put your pen in the basket on your way out the door today, that'd be helpful. In David Daniel's book called The Bible in English, it's a history of the English Bible. He tells the story of a farmer in Scotland who spoke Scots, the language of Scots. Uh, this is kind of
kind of pre-modern English. And uh, he loved the scriptures and had copied them by hand, translating them into Scots, copying them by hand in a time when it was illegal to have portions of the Bible that the church had not officially sanctioned and, and put out. And he dug a basement under his house. That's a serious DIY project. He had dug a basement under his house for the sole purpose of translating and copying texts of scripture by candlelight in his basement to give to his family. Just a farmer. You read that book uh, and it's, it's massive, but it's just filled with story after story after story like that of people who couldn't believe what they had in their own hands, God's word in their own language. All right, time's up. Uh, so if I can get my helpers to collect those on the side aisles, pass them to the outsides of the aisles, that'd be helpful. Yes, sir. Why are you passing them in? Because I need to grade them. I have to check your work to see if you did a good job as a scribe. Did you want to keep it? Did you, did you really like yours? You want to hold on to it? Okay. All right. What we're talking about this morning is canonization. And the word canon comes from the Greek word. Oh, nope. I'm ahead of myself. Let me tell you a story first. Yay, a story. I had an evangelistic encounter with a friend, um, and, and I was sharing the gospel of God's grace with him, and, and, and he was uh, of Roman Catholic persuasion. And I kept quoting scripture to him, and he said at one point, hey, don't quote that book to me, buddy. We gave that to you. Meaning, the Roman Catholic Church created the Bible rather than the Bible creates the church. Um, and it might sound strange to our Protestant ears, but that is the way authority works uh, in, in the Catholic church. And, and the idea that, you, that the Bible is on par with the Catholic magisterium, the traditions, the Pope, uh, church fathers even, um, eventually the Bible gets buried. Still a couple more down the middle aisle, Ben. The Bible gets buried under lots of competing authorities. And ultimately, the Catholic Church holds to the view that the Bible was not canonized. That is, the Bible didn't come into its final form until the church approved it. Until the church declared it to be scripture, effectively. So, um, this, is a, this is a serious matter when you're sharing the gospel with people that seem to use the same book, but really fundamentally might have a different view about it altogether. So let's talk about canonization. Canon comes from the Greek word canon, um, which simply means a rule, uh, a standard of measurement. It originally referred to a reed, then a reed used as a measuring stick, and eventually uh, referred to measurement or even that which is measured. And so the, the word came to refer to the list of books which were considered to be scripture. So the question for us today is, how did the 66 books of our Bible come to be included in the Bible? And why do we have just 66 books? And why do we have these 66 books? Are there supposed to be more? Are there supposed to be less? Uh, which ones got left out? 
I'm going to give you the bottom line up front. The bottom line is this. A book is canonical. That is, it, 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 it fits the standard and rule of what actually is Scripture only if it is God-breathed. That's the bottom line. How do we know something is canonical? Well, it's canonical if it is God-breathed. That is, inspired. Any portion of Scripture was canonical at the very moment it was written. Do you understand that? Every scripture is canonical the very moment it is written. Canonicity reflects the very nature of the scriptures. Canonicity is not a status granted to the books of the Bible by some external authority. The church does not create the canon. The church recognizes, submits to, and has the responsibility to preserve the canon. But the church does not create the canon. We're going to look at this in a couple of parts. Let's talk first about... uh, the canonization of the Old Testament. And we'll begin with thinking through some of the major events of Old Testament canon formation. Uh, The first piece of your Bible written were the Ten Commandments. You think, wait a second, I thought it was Genesis 1-1. Who penned, from a human perspective, Genesis 1-1? Moses. After... God scribed the ten words on tablets of stone and handed them down at Mount Sinai. Um, So, technically speaking, the first bit of canonized scripture uh, would most likely be the the ten words, the ten commandments. And then Moses wrote the first five books called the Pentateuch, uh, or uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then Joshua 24, 26. By the way, all these references are in the notes, and those are coming around. Just put your hand up if you need the notes. Uh, We're going to go through this pretty quick. But Joshua twenty four twenty six says that Joshua wrote words in the book of the law of God. Now think about that statement. Joshua wrote words in the book of the law of God. Listen, if you take your Bible and turn to Revelation 23, you know that blank page at the back, and you just start writing in words, uh, that's trouble. And yet that's exactly what Joshua did. Somebody submitted a question this week. Um, if Joshua did that, why can't Joseph Smith... Hey, what a great question, okay? The difference between Joshua and Joseph Smith, frankly, is Joshua wrote scripture and Joseph Smith didn't. Another way to say that is God is allowed to add to scripture, but men aren't. Men born along by the Holy Spirit to write without error God's words as he decides to reveal himself can be scripture, So when Paul writes Romans, it can be added to Deuteronomy and Joshua and the rest. Um, But when a man takes up the idea himself, or or even a demonically inspired event takes up the task of adding to the scriptures, uh, that is severely off limits. And and think about this, in Deuteronomy 4, uh, or Deuteronomy 12, um, and Deuteronomy 4, you have the express prohibition against adding to or taking away from the Word of God. And yet, in the very next book, you have Joshua adding to the words of the law of God. So here we see the, the, the collection and canonization process happening even on the pages of the Old Testament. In your notes, you have successive writers in the scriptures that go with them, from Samuel to Chronicles to Jeremiah, all doing the same thing. And significantly, when when scriptures were added, in Joshua's case, it was placed in the Ark of the Covenant next to the five books of Moses. That is significant. Um, Malachi is probably the last writer in Old Testament history. Um, He is the the last prophet. 
and his writings were concurrent with the end of the Old Testament history books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, um, and about 435 B.C. After Malachi ends his prophecy, you have what we call the 400 silent years. And they're called the silent years because God isn't speaking. Prophets aren't writing. Scripture is not being added. I want you to think about uh, the Old Testament. If all you had was up to Malachi, there are stories left unfinished. There's something that God is doing in redemptive history. There are promises yet unfulfilled. There are expectations not yet realized. Uh, Just from the the very flavor of how Malachi ends, there's an anticipation of one who will come in a certain city, and there's the expectation of a John the Baptist to precede him. Sorry, Malachi didn't say John the Baptist, but he refers to him. But I want us to think next about the Old Testament canon in Jesus' day. What did the Old Testament look like in Jesus' day? First of all, Jews in Jesus' day viewed the Old Testament canon the same way we do. In fact, those 400 silent years um, were seen as silent years by the Jews in Jesus' day. They did not believe that, that Scripture had been written during those 400 years. They believed that Malachi was the end. Uh, that even the, the seams of Malachi 4, 5 and Matthew eleven ten are significant in the way our Old Testament and New Testament are put together. You can find similar seams between the last Old Testament history uh, of the chronology in Second Chronicles with what's going on in Matthew. Um, God has uh, sewn these things together. But the Jews in Jesus' day affirmed that the scriptures were silent. In fact, uh, I'll read to you a couple of quotes from the Apocrypha which the Roman Catholic Church actually includes in the Bible as Scripture, but the Apocrypha itself says God's not talking right now. Okay, these references are in your notes, but First Maccabees 9.27. So there was great distress in Israel, the worst since the time when the prophets ceased to appear among them. And First Maccabees 14.41, the Jews and their priests have resolved that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. Two acknowledgments from the Apocrypha itself that prophets aren't talking right now. And then the Jewish historian Josephus says this, Our books, those which are justly accredited, are but two and twenty. So he counts 22 Old Testament books containing the record of all time. Of these, five are the books of Moses, comprising the laws, traditional history from the birth of men down to the death of the lawgiver. The prophets subsequent to Moses wrote the history of the events of their own times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. Um, I think I've missed something in my slides. Um, and, and if you're thinking, wait a second. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, says there are 22 books. Weren't there 39 Old Testament books? I go to my table of contents, I count them, there's 39. Why does he say 22? Uh, you need to understand that uh, scrolls on which biblical books were written were very expensive, very hard to make, very valuable. And if you made mistakes, it was a very costly mistake. And oftentimes, space was at a premium, and they would put multiple books on the same scroll. In fact, the Jews loved to uh, put certain books that kind of went together on the same scroll. So oftentimes, Judges and, Ruth, Judges and Ruth are put together on a scroll. Jeremiah and Lamentations, right? Because Lamentations are the Lamentations of Jeremiah the prophet. Um, Samuel, they didn't break it up into First and Second Samuel, but just Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. And then the Minor Prophets, or the Twelve, 
were considered one book all on one scroll. And then Ezra and Nehemiah were also often put together. So that effectively gives us 22 books. Sometimes they're listed as 22, sometimes as 24, um, even though in our <clears throat> uh, table of contents we see 39 books. That's why that discrepancy is there. Let's see if our... Okay, let's talk about the Apocrypha for just a moment. I have these in your notes. Um, the intertestamental works, that is, those, those things that were, that were written between the Old Testament and the New Testament during those 400 silent years have been called the Apocrypha. Uh, those are the uh, sort of hidden books. Um, they're not in the Hebrew Bible, but they show up in the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and they show up in Roman Catholic Bibles today. So if you, if you pick up a Roman Catholic Bible, it's a lot thicker than ours, and it has a lot of extra material. Uh, that extra material is called the Apocrypha. Uh, anybody read any of the Apocrypha, either growing up parochial schools or just for fun to read? So you come across books like First and Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the Epistle of Jeremiah, the Song of the Three Holy Children, it's also called the Prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manasseh, or First and Second Maccabees. All of these things were written during the, the 400 silent years. I have dates for them there for you in the notes. And, and it's interesting that uh, the Old Testament canon that, that Jesus came to in his own day had none of these. The, the, Jew, the Jews of Jesus' day viewed the Old Testament canon the same way we do today. Uh, Jesus quotes parts of the Old Testament nearly 300 times. And there's not a single quotation, not a single citation of the Apocrypha. No Apocryphal book is even mentioned in the New Testament. And no other works are referenced as if they had divine authority. The, the Jesus-era canon of the Old Testament is exactly the one we have today. In fact, Jesus uh, in Matthew 23 and in Luke 11 uh, covers the entire swath of Old Testament history as a way to say the whole thing is God's word and is authoritative, and it doesn't include any of those extra books. Let's look at the Old Testament canon in church history. If the Old Testament canon in Jesus' day was the same as what we have today, uh, how is it viewed throughout church history? Uh, Melito is a document from around A.D. 70, uh, that gives all 39 books of the Old Testament and no extras, same canon. Jerome's Vulgate, uh, the Vulgate was the Latin translation of the Bible. And we get our English word vulgar from it. It just means common, uh, not like bad words, but just language of the common people. Jerome's whole point in translating the scriptures into Latin was to make the Bible accessible to the language that everybody spoke. Uh, it's much like what our friends are doing in Papua New Guinea right now. How do I put the Bible into the language of the people so they can understand? Ironically, a thousand years later, the Latin Vulgate becomes the language that nobody speaks and the Bible that the church used to hide the scriptures from believers. You're only allowed to read it in the Vulgate, but nobody knows it. That's right. We're keeping it to ourselves. It's too dangerous for you to read on your own. Um, those were some of the sentiments that actually led to the Reformation. Uh, you have in 1546 the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was... Yes, sir. Well, that's a great question. Why did the Catholics keep the Bible away from people? 
that's, that's about a, a thousand year history question with a long answer. And if I am tempted to answer it here, I'll keep talking. Um, I, I don't know um, for any individual motive why somebody would want to keep the Bible from people, but the Bible threatens structures, powers, and authorities which run contrary to it. And so, um, in fact, when, when, uh, when Martin Luther first laid his eyes on the, on the Greek New Testament in a library, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. The first time he discovered a Bible, he, he's thumbing through it and he says, hey, some of this stuff is familiar. He'd been a theology student for nearly a decade, but you weren't allowed to read the Bible until you'd gone through all these steps and even so, just parts of it. And he found an old dusty Bible in a library, found it for the first time. He said, I can't believe what I'm looking at. And so I didn't answer your question. I just told you more that they hid it from people. Okay, we'll keep going. Uh, oh, the Council of Trent, 1546. What's significant about the date 1546 if it's after another date in the 1500s? Yeah, Mark? Yeah, if you know this number, you can unlock all kinds of secret passwords in my life. Martin Luther, 95 Theses. Anybody got it? Yep, I won't put that on tape, but that's correct. That number you just said. Yeah, the, the, the Protestant Reformation. Um, the, the, the 1546 Council of Trent was a, a Roman Catholic Church response to the Reformation. It was a, it was a council of counter-Reformation. It was where the, the Roman Catholic Church decided to put in print, here's what we believe that Martin Luther doesn't. Here's where we disagree with those reformers. And this was significant because it was at the Council of Trent that the Apocrypha was canonized. Now think about that. The Apocrypha written anywhere between the 300s BC and the, and the first century BC, not believed to be the Old Testament. The Apocrypha itself denies that it's scripture. The, the, the Jews in Jesus' day deny that it's scripture. The Orthodox Jews in our day deny that it's scripture. Um, Jesus never quoted from it. It's never even cited in the New Testament. The apostles didn't treat it as scripture. Even Jerome, who translated the Vulgate, who included the Apocrypha in the Vulgate translation, said, read these as books of the church, but not scripture. And, and just to think of a, of a parallel, it probably looking back, you go, Jerome, Jerome, why'd you do that? Um, it might be something like if, if, uh, if somebody wanted to put together the, the Chronicles of Narnia and a Bible kind of in one thing you could just carry around with you because you really like reading that and you really... But you don't view Chronicles of Narnia or, or some other Christian literature as scripture, as helpful as it might be. Uh, Jerome's view is that the, 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 the Apocrypha was helpful, and there actually is some really helpful information, some historical background and, and those kinds of things, but it's not Scripture. And it wasn't until 1546 that the Catholic Church declared it to be Scripture, canonized it. Again, the Church has the authority, not the inherent nature of the Scriptures themselves. And, and why is it significant that in 1546, the Roman Catholic Church has to canonize the Apocrypha. Well, because in the Apocrypha, you have doctrines like prayers for the dead, the doctrine of purgatory, the worship of angels. And these things had all become very prominent in Roman Catholic medieval theology and were being undermined by the Protestant Reformation. And so it was really critical that these things come with scriptural authority. How are we going to do that if we can't find purgatory in the Bible? Well, purgatory is in the Apocrypha, Make the Apocrypha part of the Bible. And they did it in 1546. 
Now, I'm not sure how many people today realize that the Apocrypha wasn't even technically part of the Bible until the 16th century and as a response to the Protestant Reformation. To summarize Old Testament canon and then to sort of move our way forward into thinking about the New Testament canon, I want to think about this in terms of Jesus himself. Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, Jesus is the Word of God, affirmed the Old Testament. In fact, uh, I have these in your notes. I'll just summarize this. Jesus affirmed the historical reliability of the Old Testament, the prophetic accuracy of the Old Testament, the sufficiency of the Old Testament, the unity of the Old Testament, the inerrancy of the Old Testament, and the authority of the Old Testament. And those categories um, were uh, documented by Nate Busnitz, indebted to him for those. Jesus' view of the Old Testament was it is Scripture through and through and nothing else was. And Jesus, the incarnate Word, affirmed the Old Testament. And when we think about the New Testament, Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, authorized it. He authorized the New Testament. And, and we'll unfold a little bit how that came about. So let's look first at Jesus' authorization of the New Testament canon. By the way, today's discussion on canon is really just a continuation of our discussion last week about inspiration, right? If a book of the Bible is canon as soon as it is written, then we're really talking about the fact that God breathed it out and right then and there it is God's word in print, right? It doesn't have to wait for some other step, some other recognition, some church council to become God's word. It is from the very beginning. So really we're just continuing what we began last week. But I want you to see how Jesus pre-authorized the New Testament canon. I need somebody to look up John 14, 23 to 26. Somebody to look up John 16, 12 to 15. And then somebody look up John 15, 26 and 27, who can read boisterously. Early bird gets the worm. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Okay, thanks, Jeff. The, the you in John 14 there is the upper room disciples still gathered. It's likely Judas has already left. Jesus is speaking to you disciples gathered around in the upper room discourse and saying the things that I disclosed with you, past tense, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance. In other words, Jesus is telling the apostles, those men who would be the apostles, that the Holy Spirit is going to tell them and remind them the very things Jesus had taught. Not only his life, his works, his earthly ministry, but the other things that he taught them. In other words, Jesus is pre-authorizing New Testament apostolic speech and writing. Jesus is pre-authorizing the New Testament. And, and the author is going to be the Holy Spirit. The content is going to be Jesus and his works and his message. 
and the vehicle is going to be the apostles. Okay? Uh, yeah, let's go. What, uh, who's got the next one? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, that's John 16, 12 to 15. And again, this is not a promise to believers today that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you. This was a promise in the upper room discourse that God, the Holy Spirit, would tell the apostles what they needed for the foundation of the church. He would give them their teaching, their doctrine, their message. Again, the Holy Spirit is the author. The apostles are the vehicle. The content uh, is the message, um, works, person, theology that Christ discloses. And then one last, John 15, 26 to 27. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Uh, again, this, this promise that Jesus makes, the Holy Spirit will come and testify, and then the apostles will do what? They will testify concerning Jesus. And if we skip ahead in the Gospel of John to John 21, 24, here's what John says about himself. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and who wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. What is John saying at the end of the Gospel of John? That what Jesus promised in the Upper Room Discourse is actually being fulfilled in the writing of the Gospel of John that John then sends out. So not only is this an awareness of New Testament inspiration, but it is an awareness of the pre-authorization of Jesus of the writing of the New Testament um, with all the authority that comes from the incarnate Word of God Himself. There's no apology that the New Testament, um, I'll say this metaphorically, gets set into the Ark of the Covenant next to the Pentateuch. Okay, not literally, not physically. But the New Testament gets stapled to the back of the Old Testament. That it, be, that it becomes Scripture, authoritative, on the same level. We talked about that last week. So what was the canonization of the New Testament like in the Apostles' day? First of all, the Apostles spoke and wrote with divine authority. Uh, we looked at that last week, Second Peter 3.21. Um, we saw that the apostles made no qualms about speaking, thus saith the Lord. And, and they looked at each other's writings, that they were God's speech as well. Next, we see that the New Testament writers expressed awareness that the canon was expanding. Again, last week, we watched that unfold. Uh, they, they were placing New Testament revelation on par with Old Testament canon. And then next, the New Testament picks up where the Old Testament left off. Uh, some have observed that 2 Chronicles 36, 23, which I have in your notes, and the Great Commission text, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, uh, bear some remarkable features, some remarkable similarities uh, that sort of weave the, the last historical book of the Old Testament together with the first historical book of the New Testament, uh, both with this commission. In, at the end of 2 Chronicles, the commission was Israel... Uh, may 
you be blessed in your love of Yahweh as uh, people, as the nations notice. And in Matthew 28, it's no longer uh, Jerusalem-centric, but all of us disciples of Jesus going out and making disciples in all the nations. Some really remarkable parallels as the two testaments are woven together. And from the first generation of the church, the New Testament writings were considered part of the canon. This occurred in the very days that the, the New Testament was being written. Did not have to wait till the 4th century or the 16th century to be seen as scripture by the church. So let's look at this. Look, let's look at New Testament canonization. Uh, now we're going to leave the pages of scripture. We're going to look at church history. How did the church come to recognize and submit to the 66 books that we have, and especially the 27 books of the New Testament that we have? I want to talk first about factors in the slow process of collection and recognition of New Testament books. In a moment, we'll look at some dates of when various people recognized eight books or 11 books of the New Testament. Why not all 27 at the same time? This kind of goes along with the question, why didn't God give Adam all 66 books? Boom. There it is, buddy. There's the whole, whole deal. Uh, God chose to reveal himself progressively and God did this even in the New Testament. The whole New Testament wasn't all written at the same time. It wasn't all written in the, by the same people or in the same places. And so uh, we need to think about why the, the, the collection of New Testament books and the recognition of those books took a while. And I have slow in uh, quotes there because when you think about the factors involved, it really wasn't that slow. First of all, let's think about geography and circulation. So here's the area surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. You've got North Africa, you've got Southern Europe, you've got uh, Israel over there on the far right of the picture. And if you think about what it meant for the scriptures to go from Jerusalem to Rome or to Spain or to North Africa, places where the gospel flourished and the scriptures were read very, very early in church history. I don't know how many of you have walked Italy, like bottom to top, or walked from Israel to Spain, or taken a boat and then walked and ridden a horse and then walked some more. The staggering size of what it takes to travel the ancient world without the internal combustion engine or airplanes (laughs) makes the progress of the scriptures across the Mediterranean world really remarkable. And how quickly things were copied, collected, put together, recognized in the far reaches of what was the um, Mediterranean world or the Roman Empire. Pretty staggering. And pretty staggering in the, in the providence of God that Greek was the lingua franca. It was the language that everybody spoke. By the way, it wasn't the language of Rome. What was the language of Rome? Latin. Okay. Um, why, did the, why did the Roman world uh, want everybody to speak Greek? Because everybody was already speaking Greek because the Greeks were the one who ruled the world just before the Romans. And the Romans thought, you know, it's going to be a lot easier to conquer everybody if we learn Greek and then everybody speaks the same language and, and we can rule. And in the providence of God, Greek was a fantastic language for the New Testament to arrive in. Latin would have created some difficulties. Difficulties that showed up even in the era of the Protestant Reformation. So the, the geography just makes it difficult. The methods of transportation, the fact that different people wrote in different locations, um, 
And then another factor is there was no central place of worship or depository for Scripture. There was no Ark of the Covenant. Um, that was in the, uh, the, the basement of the Smithsonian after uh, Indiana Jones found it. Um, no, that was wrong, wrong. I don't know what that was. Um, but they, they weren't depositing Scripture in the temple. It's, it's not as if the temple for the Christian era was a centrally located place where we're just every new book that comes out hot off the press, we're just going to put it there. There was no central place. Uh, many of Paul's letters were written to be circular letters. Hey, Colossae, read this and send it to Laodicea, etc. And, and letters would get passed around. Um, and then another factor in the slowness of this um, was due diligence in discernment. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us that uh, Paul commended the Thessalonian believers because they received the word from the apostles as it truly is. Not as the word of men, but as what? The very words of God. Commended them for that. Um, there are mere words of men that were not to be commended and not received. You remember Acts 17 in the Bereans, verse 11, they were noble-minded. Why? Because they were fact-checking Paul against the Old Testament. In other words, there was, a, there was a right reticence to add anything to my Bible. Uh, Paul tells uh, the Corinthians, test the spirits. He also says, don't, don't despise prophetic revelation. So there's a tension there. How do I not despise prophetic revelation? If God's truly revealing himself in the foundation period of the church, the apostles and the New Testament prophets, I want to be obedient to God's word. I want to hear what God's word says. But I don't want to be duped. <laughs> I don't want to buy into lies or the words of mere men. So even that due diligence created some of the slowness of circulation. Something really had to be uh, credible. Now let's talk about some of the factors that actually encouraged um, the process of canonization. First of all, the natural and beneficial usage of New Testament books in corporate worship and in the lives of believers. So people are gathered, they're reading the book of Romans. This is really benefiting us because the Holy Spirit is speaking through his word in the lives of his people. The Holy Spirit who pens scripture, his words in Romans are resonating with the hearts of believers. Uh, there just became a, a corporate understanding of this is God's word. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. There's a truth of that in scripture for genuine born again people as they hear God's word. And so the church just used these things. Another factor that promoted the collection or the recognition of New Testament books was spurious writings. In other words, other people writing other stuff. Well, if there's a bunch of other books out there, it's important for us to know which ones are good and which ones aren't, which ones are scripture and which ones aren't. And so those extra writings that were floating about became an incentive for Christians to say, just as a checklist, yes, 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 no, not that one. The Marcionite heresy... Uh, a little bit later on in history, became a significant impetus for the writing of lists of which books are in and out of the New Testament. And, and the reason that's significant is Marcion liked some of the Apostle Paul. He cut and pasted his Bible. He didn't like the Old Testament. He was an anti-Semite. So anything that felt Jewish to him was out. And so the church had to say, well, this guy's preaching untruth. He's a heretic. He is a false uh, religion. He's a false teacher. And he's got a false Bible. Okay, well, if, if Marcion's not right, which books are right? And so uh, that was one incentive to put together lists to recognize which ones were scripture. 
And then lots of persecutions promoted the collection of lists. Diocletian was one in particular. Diocletian was a Roman emperor who sought the burning of sacred books. Well, listen, I'm not burning for Chronicles of Narnia. You can have it. But I'll die for Romans. So Christians learned very quickly for Scripture, I don't want to go to jail over this one. I don't want to go to jail or be killed for something that's not Scripture. But I'm going to hold on to my Bible. And so it became important that people understood which was which. Let's look at some uh, important dates in the recognition of the canon. Uh, put half of them up here first. In AD 95, approximately, the canon is closed. That would be the end of uh, the Apostle John writing the book of Revelation. And in 95 AD, Clement of Rome mentions eight New Testament books. It's not that he only believed in eight. It's just that he mentions eight in his writings as scripture. Uh, that's pretty close to the closing of the canon. Well, it's kind of like the same year. Oops. In 108, Polycarp mentions 15 new books. Anybody know who Polycarp was? Okay. Disciple of the Apostle John himself, knew him personally, uh, was discipled by John. By the way, John's disciple was Polycarp. Polycarp's disciple was Papias. Papias's early um, recognition of what the New Testament was and wasn't becomes really, really important because Papias heard the Apostle John preach in person and gave testimony to his eyewitness accounts of Christ and affirmed his writings, Gospel of John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all as Scripture. In other words, recognizing apostolic authority um, right there in the very lifetime of the Apostle John. Ignatius of Antioch mentions seven books in 115. The Muratorian Canon uh, really comes from a, a, a fragmented piece of paper we call the Muratorian Fragment, which was written in uh, 170 A.D. And we don't know what's missing because it is fragmentary. We don't know what it originally had in it. But what it does have contains all of the New Testament except for Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, and one of John's epistles, um, listing all of those as Scripture. Move on to a few more dates here. In 363, the Council of Laodicea declared that, the only, that only the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament were to be read in churches. Am I dying? Is my battery dying? Got some sort of interference. We'll try this again. Um, and then finally, in 397, the Council of Carthage stated that only the 27 books that we have today were to be used in churches. All of that is the historical recognition that that which was Scripture is Scripture. It doesn't make the New Testament books Scripture. It doesn't canonize them. The canon, again, existed the moment God breathed them out through the human authors. So what is our criteria for determining inclusion in the canon? Uh, well, one criteria is that the work must be divinely authored. And that's it. That's the only criteria. That's the only criteria for determining inclusion in the canon. Why? Who determines inclusion in the canon? God. God. If, if there's anything to remember from today's lecture, that's it. God created the canon. 
Okay, there's a follow-up question. What are some considerations for recognizing what God determined to be included in the canon? Well, we can give some things that we can look at. Uh, One is apostolic endorsement. That is, the early church wanted to make sure that what was on display in any candidate for a New Testament book was some connection to apostolic authority. Uh, Another is internal and external consistency. Um, That is, did it agree with itself and and did it um, agree with things outside of itself? Um, People have looked at doctrinal conformity with previous revelation. This is where Joseph Smith falls apart. Or, or Islam falls apart, the Quran. By the way, uh, the Quran does not predate the Bible, right? Sometimes we think of Islam as an ancient religion. It's actually a very recent one. We're talking about the 8th century AD, you know, 700 years after New Testament Christianity. Islam comes around and adds books to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and the reason they fall apart is a significant lack of conformity to biblical doctrine. They disagree with what God has revealed. And then the self-attesting nature of Scripture and the work of spirit in believers. Um, That was a significant criteria that the early church looked at. Is it possible that we've missed a book? Is it possible that some candidate out there just got overlooked all this time, that there was Scripture all along, and we just as a church forgot to recognize it? I would give you several arguments. Number one, there are no strong contenders for inclusion in the canon. If you watch PBS or the History Channel, you'll hear about all these contenders. They're just not. And, and you know what? You can read them. It's not a threat. Go read them. You're going to see very quickly, ooh, this isn't Scripture. And they never have been contenders as Scripture. In their own day, they weren't contenders. And throughout history, they have not been contenders. And they're not contenders today unless you're PBS and you want to undermine the Bible. Uh, That's the only audience these things get. None of the early church contenders, we call them the pseudo-epigrapha, false writings. None of them bear weight uh, with those who love the gospel. Um, Consider the providential care of God for his church. Would he have left his church for 1,900 years without life-giving words that we need for salvation or for Christian living? Is it possible we've included a book that shouldn't be in the Bible? Right? Um, you may have, may have heard anecdotally that Luther didn't want the book of James in the Bible. It's not quite true. He did call the book of James a right, strawy epistle or a letter of straw. Um, do you remember what Martin Luther's hang-up with the book of James was? Justification by faith alone. James says, you see a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What was Martin Luther fighting for? Justification by faith alone and not by works. He missed James' point. James' argument was not a justification before God on the basis of faith. James' argument was a justification of a claim to faith in the audience of men. Both are biblically true. Both represent accurate, genuine, biblical, God-wrought faith in a heart. Faith alone justifies us before God, but that faith that justifies is never alone. And if it is to be vindicated before men, it's going to bear fruit. Romans and James fit. Martin Luther couldn't see how they fit. He was fighting a pretty significant battle at the cost of his own life. And so he had trouble. But you know what? Martin Luther included James in his canon. (laughs) He never said James is not scripture. So even though he couldn't figure it out, um, whatever you've heard about Martin Luther... And, and James, uh, Martin Luther included it in the Bible. By the way, there are no strong objections to anything in the canon. Old Testament, New Testament. Um, 
nothing, nothing to get rid of. Again, remember God's providential care for his church. He wanted us to have his word. Uh, the, the Bible is not something man makes up. Oh, there were some ancient things writing, uh, written. We should collect them together and make it an authoritative book. Consider the inward testimony of Scripture and the community of Christian experience. Again, uh, when we think about are there, are there books missing or are there books added? Um, and then finally, does the church create the canon? No. The church does not create the canon. What is the church's role? The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. J.I. Packer. The close of the canon is significant. Hebrews 1 is a pivotal verse on this. In sundry times and diverse manners, holy men of old spake forth, right, old King James. Um, in the old days, the prophet spoke. In these last days, God has spoken to us in son. That is, in, in the language of, the message of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the content, the life, the work, the message of Jesus Christ, which is the content of the New Testament, is God's final revelation. That is what he has revealed in these last days. And, and with, the, with the work of Christ portrayed in the gospel narratives and then explained in the epistles and his return promised in Revelation, the canon is closed. Uh, Revelation 22, 18, 9 gives a warning similar to Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 12, uh, Proverbs 30, that says, don't add and don't take away. So you and I don't open to Revelation 23, that blank page in the back, and start writing things in. Right? Very strict warnings uh, against that. What's the bottom line? A book is canonical if and only if it is God-breathed. Any portion of Scripture was canonical the very moment that it was written. Canonicity reflects the very nature of the Scriptures. Canonicity is not a status granted to the books of the Bible by some external authority. And then finally, the church does not create the canon. The church recognizes, submits to, and has the responsibility to preserve the canon. We'll talk about preservation next week. I've given you a page full of resources on the back of your notes and uh, in various categories. Um, those are all in our library. Uh, those are available on Amazon as well. And uh, you're dismissed.